Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we dive back into the Manson family murders, discuss diversity in theater, and watch Trump get impeached. All this plus the new season of Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and AWCYFM, only on the final Lumpen Week in Review of 2019. Our Best of the Year shows begin next week, and we'll be back with all new shows on January 10th. Happy holidays from all of us at Lumpen Radio to all of you. I-94 chatted with investigative reporter Tom O'Neill about one of the most famous murder cases in America, the Tate-LaBianca killings and the Manson family. O'Neill has uncovered new evidence that suggests there was far more to Manson's background than previously known. Was he working with the FBI? Was the CIA's MK Ultra program involved? I-94 is every Sunday at 11 a.m. This segment contains an excerpt from O'Neill's new book, Chaos. When it came to prosecuting the Manson family, the Los Angeles DA's office left nothing to chance. I'd already seen that Vincent Bugliosi had no problem getting his witnesses to lie on the stand, and that Deputy DA Buck Compton gathered intelligence on subversives and militants. What I found next was evidence of more pervasive, top-down interference by the DA's office, which took extraordinary measures to control and likely in part to fabricate the story of the Manson murders. The first signs of misconduct came during the trial of Bobby Beausoleil. He was accused of murdering Gary Hinman, the musician who'd been found stabbed to death just days before the Tate-LaBianca murders. For reasons never disclosed by Bugliosi, the DA's office tried Beausoleil separately from the rest of the family. As I suggested earlier, it made sense to try all three of the murder cases together, Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca. Law enforcement had connected the crimes. Uniting them under a single trial would have made it easier to convict Manson of conspiracy since he'd helped torture Hinman and had ordered all three sets of slaughters. And yet they kept the cases separate. I thought I knew why. If they'd thrown Hinman in with Tate LaBianca, the resulting testimony would have revealed that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, LASO, knew as early as August 10th that the Manson family was responsible for all the murders. Remember, LASO detectives Charles Gunther and Paul Whiteley broke the Tate case when a recorded phone call from one of Hinman's murderers, Beausoleil, clued them into a link with the Tate murders. The only way to hide this early break was to try the Hinman murder case separately. Beausoleil went to trial on November 12, 1969. The prosecutor was Ronald Ross, the deputy DA in Santa Monica, who confirmed to me that the case had been tried separately under very suspicious circumstances. He had orders, he said, to keep Charles Manson and the family out of the trial. That meant that scoring a conviction against Beausoleil would be an uphill battle since, after all, without Manson's instructions, he may never have murdered Hinman. Still, Ross felt he had no choice but to obey. My hands were tied, he told me. When we first spoke in 2000, he'd recently retired after 30 years in the DA's office, and the case sounded fresh in his mind. He remembered, the orders from on high, don't mention the name of Manson or these other people. Ross later learned that his superiors at the DA's office and his own investigating detectives, Gunther and Whiteley, had withheld all evidence related to the Manson family from him to keep their secret. I was pissed when I learned later that they had other evidence, Ross said. I was closed out of the thing. I really don't know why they did that. He could still recall the day the case first landed on his desk in early September 1969. He was just back from a vacation. The horrors of the Tate-LaBianca murders, then only a month old, still dominated the news. The killers remained at large and no one even knew who they were. 
Ross was struck by reports that they left the bloody word pig in conspicuous areas of both the Tate and LaBianca homes. His Hinman murder scene featured such writing, too. He took one look at the case and immediately connected it to the unsolved Tate-LaBianca murders. You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to, he said. He called in Gunther and Whiteley to ask them about it, and they said, Oh, no, no, it's not related. No, we, we can't find any connection between the two. He still sounded bruised when he added, Now I think they were lying through their teeth. Gunther denied the allegation to me, but I found it believable, given what he told me about his investigation. And if it's true, it shows that by September 1969, he and Whiteley were conspiring to hide what they'd learn about the Manson family's role in the murders. Yeah, the howling in the background of that one. Welcome back to I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And I'm joined by Michael Sack. Hello. And you just heard a reading from Tom O'Neill's Chaos. We are speaking with him live from Midtown Los Angeles. Tom, that uh, that's another seminal point in the book where, again, a, a, as you mentioned, uh, it becomes pretty clear that uh, at least some of the key investigators uh, were covering up a great deal of what was going on with Charles Manson and the Manson family. One of the interesting things that uh, that then happens, I think, is the, as I think you've mentioned, is this kind of stonewalling about this because the stakes, as I think Mike has pointed out, if it came out that uh, a lot of the official story was untrue, some of these convictions might collapse and Vincent Bugliosi himself would be up for perjury. How were you, were you shocked by this? I mean, or did you have an inkling that once things started to go down the rabbit hole, as we've called it, that other stuff was going to crop up? That score really captured what was going on in my head. <laughs> That's uh, what I said, man. Yeah, we were thinking that. I, <laughs> I was bouncing back and forth between the, the three people that she was uh, describing there and about six or seven others, and they're all telling me contradictory accounts of what happened and that the other was lying and not them. And each of those are, you know, sworn law enforcement um, officials, either uh, detectives or district attorneys, and it was just making me crazy, because I'd grown up to respect these people, and clearly somebody was lying and not telling the truth, and eventually you find out that uh, the paper record, the contemporaneous paper record, showed that they were all covering up, not all of them, but the majority of them were covering up the fact that law enforcement knew who did the murders much sooner um, than they ever were held accountable for, and that these guys were at large, and <clears throat> when they didn't need to be, and you talk about um, the three known murders, the, the Hinman murder, the Tate murders, and the LaBianca murders, but there was a fourth, uh, Shorty Shea, who was a ranch hand, right. who was killed um, about the third week of August and um, hidden at the Spawn Ranch. His body wasn't discovered until one of the imprisoned Manson families finally told the sheriffs where it was. Uh, and um, that guy definitely would have been, wouldn't have been killed had they been taken... They actually were taken into custody on August 16th, the whole group, for a separate uh, investigation. Uh, stolen autos, drugs, underage girls, runaways. Manson and 20-some of his followers were all arrested in what was then the, the biggest raid in the history of the state of California, a uh, law enforcement raid that took three weeks, four weeks to organize and top secret and released two days later without charges. And my allegation in the book is that it wasn't done for the other reasons, but they were collecting information on, on the murder case. Um, and they had to 
keep them out there for uh, I'll let the readers find out what I suggest because again I don't want to say anything definitively but I think most readers come to the same conclusion that Louis Watnick that DA did was they were more important outside than inside at that time and for what Manson wanted to do and was doing um, but what was going on in my head at that time was I just couldn't I was trying to figure out whether I was going crazy or whether it was true that this you know such a notorious you know kind of culture shifting crime was not the crime that you know we had been told to believe historically so yeah that that made me question everything and and uh it also compelled me to push harder and harder against these people to try to get the truth uh and that's when you would get an interview with like ron ross who was one of the honest ones who, who said they you know they lied to me through their teeth and lewis watnick the one who said these guys, everybody's not telling you the truth they wanted manson out there and even stephen k the pro- co-prosecutor of Bugliosi in the book you know, he didn't want to believe anything that contradicted the official version. Stephen Kay, after the trials, after the convictions, you know, uh, five people were, or seven people were sentenced to death for the short Ishe and him and murders as well. And all those death penalties were overturned by the state Supreme Court when the death penalty was thrown out in, uh, in the early 70s. So they were all commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. So for, I think, 20 or 30, no, about 25 years, Stephen Kay represented the state at something like 100 parole hearings, because they would come up for parole, depending on their which one they were, every two to five years. So there were seven people. And he would have to go and present the evidence at every one of those. So he got to know, not only did he, you know, work with Bugliosi on the main trial, but also he did the Tex Watson trial, which was after he knew the case as well or better than Bugliosi after 25 years, and I was interviewing him extensively, and when I finally had my big meeting with him in 2005 and presented him with all this evidence that contradicted basically the main thrust of, of what they presented for the motive at the murder trials and in all those parole hearings, before I showed him the documents, he said, you'll never get me to believe any of this. I know this better than anyone. I know it inside out. You're really wasting your time, but because, you know, we've been doing this so long, I'll look at your stuff. At the end of that meeting, he sunk in his chair and was shaking his head, and he goes, I don't know what to believe anymore about this. I thought I knew everything, and what I was showing was a bunch of Vince's notes, Bugliosi's notes, that had a whole different account of Melcher and Manson and all that. All goes, the lines crossed out? Yeah, yeah, and he said, if Vince lied about this, and he said, clearly this is Vince's handwriting, he goes, what else did he lie about? What can we believe? And that kind of summarizes my whole, you know, perspective on the case at that point. I had to stop believing anything I knew, and that was 2005, so I still had another 10. I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was almost finished. I had another 10 years of trying to figure out, all right, if he's saying that, then what, we can't believe anything. We have to throw everything out and look at it with fresh eyes, and that's the hard part. Tom, I wanted to mention one thing, and then I have a question for you. I, I know Manson was also possibly tied in with the murder of a Big Papa, who was a drug dealer. That was his nickname, his actual name. Lots of Papa. Lots of Papa. Lots of Papa. And yeah, yeah. His name's escaping me. Bernard Crow. That's right. 
And the other this thing. This cast is huge, by the way. If yes, you haven't figured yeah, yeah. this out, guys. Mama Cass Elliot's in there. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it's, Everybody's it's in there. Every, everybody's in this book. But well, another thing I want to just mention, too, is, you know, Manson's always called a serial killer, and he's not a textbook definition of a serial killer. Right, right. I just want to say that. But sure. my, the last question I wanted to ask, and I'm not directing that at you. I'm directing that. I just watched that documentary, and they kept calling a serial killer. I'm like yelling at the TV, he's not a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. They do it all the time. Yeah. At any rate, uh, let's talk about Bugliosi for a minute. Um, at first, you had a working relationship with, with him. Isn't that correct? Sure, yeah. I thought, you know, he was going to be the protagonist of my magazine story because he gave me access to him and his life. I spent a whole day with him, and he was wonderful, you know. He welcomed me into his home in Pasadena. We talked for hours at the house. We went out to lunch. He gave me a tour of some of the crime scenes. We went back to his house. And, uh, again, I don't want to spoil things for the readers, but he did tell me one thing that day when I really pushed him, which was also one of the openings into the unofficial version that I think he regretted after he told me that, because it came back to haunt him. And um, after, after that meeting, we were talking on the phone for the next couple of weeks, a couple times a week, and I started asking the questions about Melcher and, and, and other stuff. And, you know, I've been a journalist for... I don't know, 15 years at that point, and I'd begun as an entertainment journalist, which is, I wouldn't want to compare it to this kind of reporting, but when you're interviewing big movie stars and stuff, and you're trying to get them to talk about stuff they don't want to talk about, that was good training for me with these guys. Uh, and I'd done one true crime story prior to it. You can tell when people are don't want to tell you something or, or admitting stuff, and Again, to make a long story short, within about three or four months, I found out he was tracking my reporting, speaking to people after I spoke to them, uh, and then getting really, really uh, aggressive with me about what are you doing and what are you really looking at, and then things got really crazy five or six years later when we had a big confrontational meeting at his house when I did the same thing I did with Steve Kay was where I, I just threw everything at him, and that was a lot different uh, than the meeting seven years earlier. Um, it ended with him screaming and yelling and cursing at me and threatening me. And you know that's how that's uh, how the the book starts out, right? The prologue is is that is that last meeting, right? It begins and, with that big yeah the big confrontation, then it kind of ends with it too. Well, one of the I details I noticed about that that first scene is is uh, Bugliosi's wife, the the way Gail. you described her and 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 her behavior and. Uh, Seemed like she'd heard it all before, and maybe she maybe she thought some of it was BS. Not really sure. Um, but Bugliosi passed away in 2015. Have did you keep in touch with his family at all? Uh, interesting. You asked number one. That was. I just want to put it out there. A lot of my critics, because there are people who really want to attack the book and me and, and my methods. They think that. The reason the book took so long was I put it on a shelf and waited until he died, which is the furthest thing from the truth in the world. Uh, I really wanted him to be alive when the book came out to be accountable to all this. Uh, his wife, Gail, I don't even know if I should tip this off, but um, I know that she knows the truth about all this stuff. Um, I've never heard from her since. I felt that she was sympathetic to my cause. Yeah. Uh, and when people read the book, they'll see what kind of a life she had with Fence, which was not 
very pleasant, let's put it that yeah. way. I have debated getting in touch with her and seeing whether or not she wants to sit down and have a conversation with me. I have no idea if she'd do that or not. I did get a lot of weird threats from somebody claiming to be uh, some part of Vince's inner circle when the book came out, and some of them were really specifically life-threatening. Yeah, well, I'm outside your house right now if you don't stop doing these public appearances or saying this or that. And I mean, it was actually so blatant. It was so much like Vince. I thought he'd come back to life. Uh, (laughs) But I did know that the person did have some kind of affiliation with him. But I also decided it was like a nephew or a grandkid of him or who knows who, because you could tell they were really juvenile kind of threats and you know i saved everything It was all online and uh, i didn't engage too much but i kind of wanted to keep track of where the person was because i was a little worried i mean i've been threatened for 20 years but the only threats i was ever i mean i was threatened by manson family members but the only threats i was ever really concerned about were the the ones from vince uh, when he was alive Mario Smith chatted with Carla Stilwell about race, representation, and theater on the South Side. Stilwell, a longtime theatrical director, spoke about how Hamilton changed the game, where Chicago theater is going, and why people of color were locked out for so long. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2. Joining me uh, here, I want to make sure I do not mess up the entire title as I had earlier this morning when I posted that I was going to have the, the, the vivacious and lovely Carla Stillwell, the executive director of the Stillwell Institute for Contemporary Black Art, my good friend and friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, yeah. Carla Stillwell. Ooh, what? 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 I'm in the house. What? You're here. And you did well with the title because, let me tell you why, mm-hmm. I abbreviate with the Stillwell Institute, and that's all I usually say. And what's the abbreviation? Oh, well, just, just the, Stillwell the Stillwell Institute. Institute. And that's what that's I did acceptable. earlier. That's acceptable. Exactly. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I, when you posted it, I was like, oh, let me make sure I give her the whole. <laughs> you know, it's like Dr. Evil. I, I didn't go to school. I'm not Fred Evil. I'm Dr. Evil. <laughs> um, thank you for being down here. Thank you for having me. Please stop. Um I before we talk well we we we're going to talk about a few things. I'm ready to talk about all of it. Cuz <laughs> all of it cuz I know what this is. Yeah. I'm here. There's, ready. There's some things to talk about. Yeah. Um but I am excited to talk about the uh, Stillwell Institute and to talk about the things that you're doing. What was the impetus behind starting it for folks who don't know? Um so for those of you who know me like it might be one of y'all out there. Um I have been in theater in Chicago for 150 years and I was <laughs> Um, 22 seasons with Impact, the Mob Production Association. Is this your African 22nd season? season? This la- Well, 2018 was my 22nd season. Wow. Um, and uh, for 10 of those years, I was the managing director. And for five of those years, I was the artistic director. Mm-hmm. And I woke up in the middle of the night <laughs> on April 18th of 2018. Mm. And I was like, I'm tired. Mm. I'm exhausted. And I needed to step down because it had been 22 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like raising a child. Yeah, yeah. I finally got a child to college and then I said no. That's where I'm at with this show. Exactly. It's 18 it's, years going on 19. Man. About but ready I, to kick this thing out the house. <laughs> but um, I was totally tired, exhausted. Mm-hmm. And so I stepped down and I was thinking like, I need a break. So I had lied to myself and said I was going to stop doing art for a minute and just breathe. <laughs> Lies. Right. Um, and then... I just had an epiphany. 
I was like, it's not that I'm tired of art. I'm tired of the bigotry mm. and the uh, racism in American theater in general. Mm. Because I never thought I'd say this, but I said it last year at a conference. I never thought that Disney would be more progressive Whoa. than the American theater. Wow. Wow. I never thought that the organization started by an actual Nazi <laughs> would be more diverse and progressive wow. than American theater. I said, that's what's making me tired. Mm. So, but I'm dedicated to emerging black artists because that's what I did. We only did new work. Mm -hmm. So I only worked with people at a certain point in their career to help them move forward. I said, I need to do that for black artists in general mm -hmm. across the board in Chicago. We, somebody needs to go out and find resources for these emerging artists of all disciplines to get with a mentor, mm. work on their um, projects, um, figure themselves out, learn how to write their artist statements, learn how to get their things photographed and get documentary evidence, learn how to do the things that you need to do to be a living, thriving artist so that you can eat and live indoors and still have passion and love in your work. Right. So that's what I decided to do with my crazy self. Do, do you find that there's a bit of, miasma is a bad word to use in this sense, but a bit of lag in, in, in American theater when it comes to, um, you have your Lin-Manuel Miranda's, right? Mm-hmm. Who, it, it, one, of most, one of the most awesome cats you'll yeah, ever like, see or, or, or do everything, anything. He's, everything he does, he's, he's amazing. He's mega dope. He's that dude. Completely dope. And this is not a slap against him at all. But there are others who yeah. have equal or more talent. Um but it's, but it's that highlander thing that rich white people make us think that mm. there can only there's there can be a million of them, but there can only be one uh, minority, one other. Why is that? Racism, capitalism. Yeah. I, it, American theater audiences are like the GOP. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> They're old white and dying. Yeah. And to hold on to this power, uh, they keep putting artistic directors in in seats in these in the in the lord theaters and the regional theaters that are old and white mm -hmm. like literally if you look at pictures of all of the artistic directors in theater in this country they look like the republican party wow. like and so and then there's this this idea that if we move in another direction that's more progressive with more people of color more people of diverse backgrounds then we're going to lose our audience. Well, baby, you're going to lose your audience in 10 years because they all 87. Right. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> They're not going to be around to see it anyway. They're not going to be around to see it. So American theater does not build for the future because capitalism and racism. There it is. Do you, it. Do, it, so, so with that in mind, because that's going to steer us right into my other part of, of talking to you today. Yeah. What is it that the artist of color, what is it that that person does to change, to change not so much what white folks in American theater think about us, but to, to make us more aware of our our greatness and our artistry. Is it is it more houses for us built by us? What you're doing with the Stillwell Institute is it more? Um, is it more established actors on Broadway of color saying, you know, I'm I'm not doing this here anymore. I'm gonna take my talent somewhere else. What, what, what exactly is it that we do? It is all of that that you said. It is both and. It is our job 
as black, brown, queer artists, disabled artists, to make a home for ourselves. And it is the job of those of us who have more experience, who know a few people, who understand the game and our discipline. Is that make them come back. to us instead of us going to them? Make who come to us? Make make the make the others come I, to us. I don't care about the others. That's the other thing. Mm. As black and brown and and, and other artists, mm. we can't. You can't care. You can't create um, trying to get white people's attention, trying to get other the get the uh, majority's attention. Mm. You have to create for yourself and for your people. And whoever comes. You, 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 you create, it is a FUBU situation. Mm-hmm. And it is our job to guide the process. And if you've, been, if you've been emerging and you've gotten to this other level, it is your job to reach back. And that's part of the, my challenge to the mentors that I bring in. Joel Hall came and mentored one of my dancers. Mm. Like he, because he understands, mm-hmm. right, that this is my job. I'm here. I'm Joe Hall. Right. Like, and I need to help bring these other artists of color with me. It was an easy conversation with him. Yeah. You know, like, so that's, that's our, that's the thing. Do you find that there's conversations like that that aren't as easy though with emerged artists of mean, color? Uh, like, like, com- the, like to come back and help, come back and assist, come back and mentor. Have you, have you ever had a situation where you had that conversation no. with someone and they were like, there's no way I'm doing that. Oh, no, absolutely not. That's that's refreshing. No, I, ha- I haven't had that feedback. I've actually had people ask me to mentor mm. since the, in the last year and a half. I've had people tell me, you know, I want to be down. If they people have referred me like this is an artist in my discipline that I think you might want to look at um, as a fellow, mm-hmm. um, you know, like it, it, it has been literally it's been a big hug from the community and I'm so grateful and excited for it. Hey there, my producer, are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez, you sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know, it's awful. I know a guy. Have you noticed how many episodes start with I knows a guy or this dude over here? Uh, no, what's your point? You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I... I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from. Ugh, jeez. Scenario to scenario. I. I mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something? Huh. Well, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that Size Matter 71, and, and that was, like, 17 episodes ago if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making references no one cares about. Listen, and... Jess, I got what's going to cure your allergies, I swear. Now <sighs> you got to come see this guy. I'm just... This is just going to be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut. Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? Right, we, we walked the entire way from the co-pro. Uh, you got a burrito at Martinez, and I didn't even get a bite, so I don't oh, even... Oh, yeah, I still have that half in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hand-warming burrito. Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but... Uh, we all could call him poopers. I'll, you'll Suddenly see why. I'm not super sure about this, Kyle. 
Oh, whoa, 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 what is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, Poops, what's going oh, on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks died in here. That's the natural medicines. My producer, he has got some allergies. Maybe you could... Uh... The allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh, seriously, what is that smell? It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Just, I'm telling you, I had cancer and poopers, he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that. Let me just smear a little of this here and here under your nostrils. Just breathe deep. Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm going to puke. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing. You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. What's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more people don't use these natural methods. I hate that this is working. I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can. Do you think this is really a good idea? Well, Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity herds. Uh, by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple of bags of this, and I'll take a couple of bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. What is this really dog sh- Not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies are solved. This week on the Trump Diaries, Mitch McConnell says there is no chance the Senate will remove Trump and adds he's not an impartial juror. Rudy says he wanted the ambassador to Ukraine out of the way. Trump bullies a 16-year-old girl. Russia calls Trump their agent after it is revealed the Kremlin paid for Rudy Giuliani's Ukraine pressure campaign. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1057, December 12th. The House Judiciary Committee debated impeachment for eight straight hours in increasingly bitter terms before finally dissolving for the evening without a vote. Republicans proposed a variety of amendments intended to gut the impeachment resolution. None passed. Trump sent more than 100 tweets and retweets during that time, insisting he committed no crime and did nothing wrong, and calling the impeachment inquiry crazy. Meanwhile, the White House Office of Management and Budget claimed in a new memo that it withheld the U.S. military aid to Ukraine as a way of studying whether the spending complied with U.S. policy. The OMB is overseen by Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Also, it turned out that Trump's Ukraine campaign was paid for by Russia, literally. A Giuliani associate received $1 million from a Russian account in September, one month before he was charged with conspiring to funnel foreign money into U.S. elections. Lev Parnas met repeatedly with Trump and claimed Trump pulled him aside at last year's White House Hanukkah party and personally directed his activities in Ukraine. Parnas also gave $500,000 to Giuliani, which he used to travel to Ukraine. After Greta Thunberg was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Trump ridiculed the 16-year-old climate activist on Twitter. Quote, so ridiculous, Greta must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old-fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Greta, chill. Donald Trump Jr. was also very offended. Quote, Time leaves out the Hong Kong protesters fighting for their lives and freedoms to push a teen being used as a marketing gimmick. How dare you? 
Not coincidentally, the hashtag BeBest began trending on Twitter, a reference to Melania Trump's anti-cyberbullying campaign. And the Justice Department Inspector General said he's still investigating possible illegal leaks by the FBI by Rudy Giuliani in 2016, days before James Comey announced he was reopening the criminal probe into Hillary Clinton's email server. Giuliani claimed he heard about some, quote, pretty big surprises regarding Clinton that, quote, should turn this thing around. And Trump has signed off on a so-called phase one trade deal with China. The arrangement would cut Trump's tariffs on up to $360 billion of Chinese goods by half in exchange for Chinese commitments to purchase more U.S. agricultural goods. The phase one deal does not come close to achieving the major structural changes to China's economy that Trump has demanded. Day 1058, December 13th. Trump's impeachment was formally passed by the House Judiciary Committee. Trump is now expected to be formally impeached by the full House this next week. Attention then moves to the Senate, where Democrats and Republicans are jockeying over that trial's format. Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has proposed beginning a trial on January 7th with a fixed amount of time and four top White House officials as witnesses. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is reportedly seeking a short trial, while Trump, instead, is seeking a drawn-out trial. The Senate is not expected to remove Trump. McConnell said there's no chance that Trump will be removed from office. McConnell further claimed it wouldn't surprise him if some Democrats broke ranks to vote in favor of Trump, calling the case so darn weak. McConnell said he will end the trial as soon as he has 51 votes. Trump's senior aides have restricted the number of administration officials now allowed to listen to Trump's phone calls with foreign leaders. That, of course, took place since the July 25th call with Ukraine's president was revealed. The Senate passed a resolution officially recognizing the Armenian Genocide. Three previous attempts to pass that measure were blocked by Republican senators. Trump responded that the Armenian Genocide was not genocide. A federal judge has rejected the Trump administration's request to lay a lawsuit against Attorney General William Barr and the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross for defying congressional subpoenas relating to the handling of the 2020 census. Barr and Ross were first held in contempt of Congress in July. And Trump issued an executive order to interpret Judaism as a nationality, not just a religion, which would allow the government to withhold money from colleges for what he claims is anti-Semitism. In fact, the order is an attempt to end the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which has targeted Israel for repression of Palestinians and the illegal settlements in the West Bank and Gaza. It is popular on college campuses. Jared Kushner pushed for that order. The order is likely unconstitutional. Day 1059, December 14th. A Wisconsin judge has ordered some 234,000 residents dropped from the voting rolls. The ruling in County Circuit Court grew out of a legal fight over what should become of thousands of voters who were sent letters by state election officials because they were believed to have moved. That case was pursued by a far-right activist group which is trying to push Wisconsin firmly into the Republican role. The voters appear to be removed in heavily Democratic districts such as the state's large cities and college towns. That ruling is being appealed. Supreme Court will now hear three separate cases over whether Trump can block the release of his financial records. Two of the cases involve subpoenas issued by House committees seeking financial documents from Trump's accountants and two banks. The other is a grand jury subpoena from New York to Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA. Arguments are now scheduled for its March session. A decision is expected by the end of June in the midst of the presidential campaign. The Defense Department's Inspector General is now reviewing a $400 million border wall construction contract. Fisher Sand and Gravel was awarded that contract despite concerns the proposal, quote, did not meet the operational requirements of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. 
Yaji also said he has, quote, concerns about the possibility of inappropriate influence exerted on the Army Corps of Engineers. Trump, in fact, pushed to give Fisher the contract after the CEO of the firm made multiple appearances on Fox News. And Rudy Giuliani told The New Yorker he wanted Maria Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, quote, out of the way as he pushed for investigations into Joe Biden. He is quoted as saying, quote, I believe that I needed Yovanovitch out of the way. She was going to make the investigations difficult for everybody. Giuliani, without evidence, later accused Yovanovitch of, quote, obstructing justice and having enabled Ukrainian collusion. Day 1060, December 15th. A Russian disinformation campaign launched smears against Marie Yovanovitch, the former American ambassador to Ukraine. According to stories that ran on the Hill website, Yovanovitch had been given a list of people whom we should not prosecute to Ukraine's prosecutor general, Yuri Lysenko. Five days later, an image of that purported list appeared in a post on the website Medium and on some other self-publishing platforms. The story appears to be part of a wider campaign. 44 stories were launched by the operation between October 2016 and October 2019, based on forged documents and non-existent interviews. The falsehoods touch on everything from Hillary Clinton's bid in 2016 to rumors about the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. Russia was barred from that Olympics due to doping. Trump said he would not participate in the presidential debates, falsely accusing the nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates of bias. Quote, it's stacked with Trump haters and never Trumpers. And Trump suggested that Nancy Pelosi's teeth were falling out while she was answering a question about why bribery wasn't included as one of the articles of impeachment against Trump. Nancy Pelosi's teeth are fine. Day 1061, December 16th. Minority Leader Chuck Schumer requested that former National Security Advisor John Bolton and the Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney testify as witnesses during the Senate's impeachment trial. Mitch McConnell swatted that down, claiming the Senate would, quote, not help Democrats make their weak case. Schumer responded it was totally out of line for McConnell to take cues from the White House for the impeachment trial. In fact, McConnell and White House lawyer Pat Cipollone have discussed plans to coordinate a strategy. A freshman New Jersey Democrat who said he was going to switch parties saw his entire staff quit. Jeff Andrew is one of just two Democrats who voted against the authorization of an official impeachment in October. Last Friday, Van Drew met with Trump in the White House where the president urged him to join the Republican Party. The Senate passed a $738 billion compromise defense policy bill that would establish a space force and grant paid parental leave to federal workers. Trump has vowed to sign the bill. Trump plans to announce a withdrawal of roughly 4,000 U.S. troops from Afghanistan. The withdrawal would be between 8,000 and 9,000 troops in that country. Officials, however, have refused to say when the withdrawal will begin. And Trump criticized the Federal Reserve again, tweeting, would be so great if the Fed would further lower interest rates and quantitative ease. Trump has increasingly pressured the Fed to take steps to juice the economy ahead of his bid for re-election in 2020. Day 1062, December 17th. The House Judiciary Committee released its report on two articles of impeachment. In the 658-page report, Democrats said Trump committed constitutional and criminal bribery by trying to press Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and the 2016 election as the country's military aid was held up. The report said there is, quote, little doubt Trump attempted to bribe Ukraine and says that his behavior betrayed the nation. Quote, Trump's obstruction of Congress does not befit the leader of a democratic society. It calls to mind the very claims of royal privilege against which our founders rebelled. Trump responded by tweeting, quote, 
The stock market hit another record high yesterday, number 133 in less than three years, as your all-time favorite president. And the radical left do nothing Democrats want to impeach me. Don't worry, I have done nothing wrong. Actually, they have. He then sent a rambling and unhinged six-page letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi that claimed that, quote, more due process was afforded to those accused in the Salem witch trials, calling it an unprecedented and unconstitutional abuse of power and a spiteful election nullification scheme. Trump also accused Pelosi of portraying a false display of solemnity during the impeachment process. Mitch McConnell called a request for White House officials to testify strange and said the Senate will not volunteer his time, quote, for a fishing expedition. McConnell later said he's not an impartial juror. I'm not impartial about this at all. Former Trump campaign aide Rick Gates was sentenced to 45 days in jail to be served on weekends. He was also fined $200,000. Gates, a key witness in the Mueller investigation, pled guilty last year to one count of conspiracy against the U.S. and one count of making false statements to the FBI and to Robert Mueller. Meanwhile, Giuliani told CNN in a phone interview that Trump has been very supportive of his attempts to dig up damaging information on Democrats in Ukraine. When pressed, he declined to say whether or not Trump personally directed his efforts. Senator Lindsey Graham invited Giuliani to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee about his recent trip to Ukraine. Giuliani traveled to Ukraine earlier this month to gather information. Trump had previously promised he would make a report to Attorney General William Barr. The House approved a $1.4 trillion spending package to avert a government shutdown and fund the federal government through next September. That legislation will now move to the Senate, which must act before midnight on Friday when existing funding for government agencies expires. Trump has not said if he'll sign it. Day 1063, December 18th. After another day of deeply partisan wrangling in the House, the full House of Representatives impeached Trump. The result was a foregone conclusion given that Democrats had locked up the votes to impeach before the session began. Republicans attempted to delay and derail the process, but a key procedural vote passed early to open debate, meaning that Trump is the third president in history to be impeached. Trump said he would move forward with plans to allow states to safely import prescription drugs from Canada for the first time. The decision is an unusual one for a Republican administration, as the pharmaceutical industry vehemently opposed drug imports by claiming they were unsafe, despite the fact that they're the same medicines. Americans pay some of the highest prices for medicines on the planet. Those medicines have largely been developed with American federal funding. Russian state media referred to Trump as their agent after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with Trump in the Oval Office recently. The network aired a segment called Puppet Master and Agent. A new Fox News poll shows that 54% of Americans think that Trump should both be impeached and removed from office, a finding that visibly surprised their on-air talent. A large 71% majority of Americans say Trump and Republicans should allow senior White House officials to testify in the Senate. The Trump Diaries will return in the new year. These are the Trump Diaries. John and Jamie chatted with Cole DeGenova about his career as a sideman in Los Angeles. Starring on albums by Lupe Fiasco and Chance the Rapper, DeGenova's piano playing has won him raves, but he wanted his own solo career. How did he balance that? Find out on Radio Free with John Daly. It airs every Tuesday, drive time. I would, you know, it didn't, I can tell there's some jazz elements in it, but I mean, this felt really kind of contemporary R&B, electro. Yeah. Um, Good, that's what I'm going for. Yeah, I mean, more, a little, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, a little more groovy than, than I would, you know, I mean, Micaiah aside, you know, right, I mean, right, or right, Junius right. Paul aside, when, when I was listening to your stuff, I, I did not, 
think it came out of the jazz idiom. So what what attracted you to this particular communication right here? Uh, like this style? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I was always into all sorts of music. Um, I like to say, like, when I was when I was little, my my dream was to be Michael Jackson. I don't know if that's allowed. You're allowed to say that anymore, but that was, you know, I've always loved like pop music and R and B and funk and and then I was, you know, when I when I was in high school, it was like junior high and high school. That's sort of when the whole Soul Quarians thing was happening. Mm-hmm. The neo soul, like D'Angelo and the Roots and Erica Badu and that whole scene. That was really influential for me. Just more from like a social context. Text. That's mm-hmm. that's what me and my friends would sit around and and you know, just chill and listen to. And yeah. and that lent itself a lot to like moving more in sort of an R and B direction. But even those people, you know, they they have a lot of jazz. You know, they 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 come from sort of the tradition in a way. Yeah. You bring up a really interesting point. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but um, you know, Michael Jackson's obviously. A problematic figure right now, especially after right. the release of Finding Neverland. Yet, you know, I was talking with someone else who is also a big Michael Jackson fan. I, I personally never was. I was yeah. a big Bill Cosby fan, though. I loved oh, I Fat Albert. I watched that all the time as a kid. And now it's really strange to think how much joy that gave me as a kid. And there, then there's this darkness on the other side of it. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, you're you're an artist, obviously. Is it now difficult for you to separate the stuff that gave you such inspiration and, and gave you such joy from the accusations or things that we now know about some of these figures? Uh, well, uh, I think I don't. I, I think I, I think artists are are complex figures in general, and I and I think like maybe for a long time we we didn't. We didn't get because of how like in, innocuous and or not or ubiquitous that that the media is now. Like we know so much more about artists in general, and I think there's a certain like torment and and struggle for any artist. Um, and not to not to say like what they did is is not all right, but I think I think it's good that we're talking about the complexities of these hyper famous artistic creative people and it, it it brings the humanity back to it instead of just putting these people on pedestals and and saying like they're they're supernatural or some beings like no they're people too and and struggle with the same demons that a lot of people struggle with so i i personally still enjoy listening to michael jackson music but you know it's just a more complex conversation now yeah how did you make the choice to go from because you had a, a fairly decent gig as a side guy you know what yeah. i mean and uh that's if you're a good side man you know that's a good living it's it's you yeah. know a real tough thing to break into but i mean um i used to work in in hollywood and, and los angeles and in television i mean those guys if you were good and you showed up every day it was a decent living what yeah. made you decide to take the leap to go uh and have a solo project and put yourself out of out of a world that you know you you were excellent at there was no question about it you got the credits you yeah know? Um, the, the solo project was always there. Um, and I mean, I've been writing songs my whole life. So that, that to me has always felt like the, the constant, um, and, and the sideman stuff has just sort of come in and out just as, you know, opportunities, you know, come in and out. But I think a lot of my career has been balancing 
you know, what's going to make me money and what is going to be artistically fulfilling. And, uh, you know, sometimes the money side can, you can get stuck in that for a while and then sort of lose sight of, of what you're really trying to do. And so, yeah, it's been like kind of a, a back and forth for, you know, the last 10, 12 years now. But, uh, but especially with this new album I got coming out in the spring, this has been this has been like three years in the works now, and it, the reason it took so long was because I kept getting sidetracked with, with you know, really great sideman gigs, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have those. But uh, it's, it's kind of serendipitous that this tour that I was going to go on last fall sort of unexpectedly got canceled uh, like a couple weeks before we were supposed to leave. And, um, and it was this two-month tour. It was like, you know, I had been planning for it for like a year, and uh, and after that happened, I sort of had to just sort of reevaluate everything in my life, you know, have some existential crisis and stuff. And I was like, well, I have this album that I've been putting off for the last two years. Like now I should, I mean, I should really just put all my energy into that and do it right and not get distracted. Did you, uh, I mean, was a lot of the writing done at different times or? Was- yeah. Yeah, I would say. I mean, most of the songs were written maybe a, you know two or three years ago, but there's some newer stuff on there too. And that's the, that's the struggle with like any creative project. I'm sure George can attest to this. Like, you know, you spend so much time working on something, and then in the process, you're writing all this other material. So by the time you're like ready to put something out, you're like, I got a whole another album ready to go. Uh, but you know, you just gotta be patient. Cold Day Genova played his Motown inflected R&B in Studio A for John Daly session. Off his forthcoming LP, this is We Broke. It was engineered by Ari Shellist.
Friday the 20th at 1 p.m., the Healing Tarantula will be in Co-Prosperity Street. Oh, I've heard of this one. Yeah, well, uh, it purport, it will, it, the, the Healing Tarantula will purportedly bless the sick and needy and heal those who approach it if it comes out of its hole. And that's really all I know about it. There's not a lot of information, what I've been given, a lot of information on the internet, although I have seen some pictures and there are crowds and crowds of individuals with very clearly very sick individuals sure. attempting to um, gain the attention of this tarantula. So yeah. I, it, I, it must be doing something, right? Well, DF, I just, I just ask, ask, uh, you know, if, if this, if such a thing, if such a tarantula could have such a profound impact on people. Why, why aren't we, you know, looking into harnessing this power in some way? Well, uh, those who do show up uh, who are not as such uh, 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 seen or touched by the tarantula, they do have available – some of the hairs that uh, the uh, that come off the back of the tarantula yes. available, as well as fragments of its molts uh, that are apparently available if you ask its attendants. Um, although I, by my understanding, they are not cheap, which um, so I cannot. Uh, I just uh, I just don't think we Chicago has famously it's not it's always been a, it's always been a a, a fish. Fish. It's like a, it's been a fish based, fish and shark based culture. It's not been a spider based culture like you know New Jersey or Connecticut. Well, Chicago is a, a city of immigrants, so you know I think when the, the 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 tarantula meets the shark, you know the there's room for all sorts of animal reverence. I, I in, just in don't our think city. I just don't think that the culture, just the cultural differences, allow for the tarantula. To be making distinctions about who in Chicago is worthy of being healed, who's needy enough, who's sick enough. Well, people people are opting to seek seek its blessing. So I, it's not. I don't know. It's not When's for me. When's the last time you looked at a tarantula and thought that thing has the my best interests in mind? <sighs> Once or twice, but not recently. Just because this is a tarantula that has been purportedly gifted with these monumental powers which honestly i'm i'm skeptical of no i'm sorry i take that back that was actually um an amazonian bird eater that uh came into my rescue once i don't think i've ever trusted a tarantula <laughs> exactly i've never trusted a tarantula as far as i could throw one because they always seem to be able to jump back to me broadcast every saturday 8 to 9 p.m
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Bolt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>